are you today? All right. Well, one dry day to get us through church is good, right? All right, so we are back in Revelation. So, I was getting there. I'm coming on. Hi, kids, by the way, in case people had forgotten. So we want to encourage you. If your kids want to stay with you in service and learn and be as a part of a family, we want to encourage that. We also have age-appropriate classrooms. If you want to send your kid to our classrooms, you can do that now. They can follow whoever yelled at me the loudest, which probably would have been Melissa over there, but I don't know. Anyhow, so uh, who are we following? All right, follow there. Pastor John's taking them all out. Okay, cool. We don't want to just randomly send your kids off into the parking lot or something, so I just want to make sure. All right, we good? Revelation. We're back in Revelation. Woo! Okay, that's where we were. All right. Revelation chapter 4. So this morning, I want to recap a little bit. I want to pick up where we were. So I want to encourage you. First and foremost, always bring a Bible, right? That should be easy. If you need one today, however, you can borrow one from the chair in front of you. And we're going to be on page 1030, 1030. And so we're going to be in Revelation 4. We're going to cover Revelation 4 and 5. Because Revelation isn't tough enough, we're going to do two chapters at a time. All right. Now, let me encourage you. Bring a notebook. Bring a journal. Bring something you can write in. I highly recommend, if you've been around the church at all, go to a community group, men's study, something like that. You've seen these ESV uh, Bible journals, right? They go per book. So this one's Revelation, since we're in Revelation, right? Text on one side, blank stuff on the other. So you can just follow along, take notes, write all over the text, and not destroy your own Bible. So it's good. A lot of you write in your Bible. That's fine. I don't write in my Bible because over the years, I've been in the same places, and sometimes when I'm reading, I just want to be in Scripture, not thinking about what God said last time to me, right? Make sense? Take notes. This is Revelation. This is probably the least taught book in the entire Bible, maybe next to Deuteronomy, right? And there's a lot of misunderstandings around it. And so we're trying to clear those up. And so we're trying to give kind of clear, understandable look at Revelation. So I'm going to put the opening verses up on the screen. This is where we've been. Now, by the way, I'm doing a recap today. I don't do this every week, but it's been like three months since we've been in Revelation, right? So we took a break for Christmas, and then I got news that I had to have surgery in 12 days, hence the funny collar. Anyhow, so that happened, right? And then surgery actually happened, and then time has gone by. We're just getting back to it. But these are the opening words of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, so it gives you a bit of information about what the book is about, right? Which God gave him, meaning Jesus, to show his servants, that might be us, the things that must soon take place. Note, soon. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, sent a messenger to John, our author, John the disciple, John the apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation, who bore witness to, and I want you to see these three things, who bore witness to the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Here's the three things that we need in order to understand Revelation. We need the word of God. The number one way you can understand Revelation is the Old Testament. 
All of our imagery that we get comes from the Old Testament. You think it's all brand new here. It's not. And then the testimony of Jesus, that would be the Gospels and the New Testament letters that were being written, this one being the final one, written about 90 AD. And then, in small ways, what John saw, most of what John saw, we can take all the way back to the Old Testament, some into the teachings of Jesus, right? Okay, so even all of these saw, blessed is the one, and I want you to hear this, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of these prophecies, so I get blessed just for doing this, right? That's what I see. Blessed is the one, thank you, I appreciate that. All right. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear. You're welcome, right? Okay. And, bah, I get blessed for reading them. You have to hear and obey. Ah, oh. But what's the implication? You're supposed to be able to understand. How can you obey if it isn't understandable, right? These words were written and intended for you to understand them. This is not supposed to be a mystery. In fact, as one commentator says, there's nothing new in Revelation. It's compiled different, but it's a compilation of so many things we've already known in Scripture put together. Not actually anything really new. So blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Notice, soon take place, time is near, okay. It's actually going to happen to the people he's writing to. And here it is, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. John is getting this message from Jesus. God gives Jesus this message that Jesus sends through an angel to John, where Jesus actually shows up and talks to John. Jesus will speak in Revelation 4 today. And he gives it to him for the churches alive during that time. There are seven churches in Asia Minor that John had a relationship with, cared for, wrote to. And he is to address those seven churches. Jesus then speaks to those seven churches addressing each of them, interestingly enough, by saying to the angel of the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Sardis, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, reminding us that there is this deep connection between us and the God who is speaking to us. And that these churches exist. They're, they're real churches going through real things. To each of those churches, they are told to the one who conquers. We'll see that in just a minute. To the one who overcomes. See, those churches were told, listen, you're in this world and going through trials and struggles and tribulation, but to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers, you will be with me. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. So I want to put aside the idea that Revelation is not understandable. Again, bring a Bible, bring a journal, take notes. It's understandable. Some of the imagery we're not going to cover today, we already covered in Revelation 1 and 2 and 3. Right? So you could go back to that. If you've missed any of those, maybe you're new to the church, maybe you just missed them, they're on YouTube. You can go through our website, hit me up, we'll give you the links. But a lot of imagery builds on itself. So take notes, refer back. 
And revelation is not a new revelation. It's not something brand new. It's something that scripture has always been saying, but it's being put together. And it was for the Christians alive at the time, and then by implication for us. But for them, written to them, for them. This is not a book about what is going to take place, with the exception of the last three chapters. This is not a book about what's going to take place. In fact, I would assert it's a book about what always takes place, about how the church is persecuted, how the church does need to overcome. Five out of seven of the churches are being persecuted that are being written to here. You want to know what's different about the other two churches? They're not walking with Jesus. See, the churches that are being faithful are being persecuted. The churches that are not being faithful to Jesus, oddly enough, not being persecuted. I'm not saying you have to be persecuted to be faithful, but I would say this, if you're being faithful to Jesus, it is likely you're going to endure some opposition. Revelation 3, right at the end, right before chapter 4 begins, I want to start Revelation 3.21. I want to say it again, to the one who conquers, Jesus says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear. If you are listening, hear this, Jesus says. What the Spirit says to the churches, even though individual addresses go out to these seven churches, the message is for all churches. Again, by implication, for our church today. You with me? We should understand this because we're called to obey it. All the imagery has been given to us. The problems exist because most people go into it and try and interpret it through the newspaper. Young people, the newspaper is the thing we had before cable news. <laughs> Younger people, cable news is what we had before TikTok. <laughs> we all on the same page? We don't interpret revelation by the current media events because it was written 1,900 years ago to churches that were going through it then. And it teaches us a lesson, or many lessons, that we apply to ourselves when we're going through it today. So maybe you've had a tough week. Maybe you've struggled through things. Maybe you are facing opposition right now. Maybe tribulation is how you would define your life at this moment. Well, then you're in good company because the churches receiving this letter from John are in that very condition. Now, typically, the, endure, the things that we are called to endure today are not like the persecution where they are giving their lives for their faith. In Smyrna, it says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. In Pergamum, he commends that Jesus commends them for not denying their faith when Antipas, Antipas was killed among them. Our sufferings, our struggles, are typically not like that. But it doesn't mean that our, our struggles, our trials, our tribulation aren't real. 
You with me? So when we struggle, sometimes we find ourselves asking, where is God? Today is all about that answer. Here's a main idea. We'll put this on the screen. Worship the Lamb who is worthy. The seven churches are being called to overcome and conquer. And we get a glimpse into heaven where the Lamb is proclaimed worthy of all worship. We're going to see into heaven right now. We're going to to shift from the suffering, struggling church on earth. We're going to shift and we're going to get a peek inside what is going on at a divine level. In heaven, not in the future, in heaven, concurrent. There's the lower story where the, the church is enduring tribulation, some to the point of jail, some to the point of death, many to the point of just their lives are being ripped away from them. In the first century, it was illegal to be a Christian because they were monotheistic, meaning they would not worship Caesar. And so you couldn't work in many cases. You couldn't be a part of a union or something. And so you could literally lose your income for following Jesus, not to mention maybe your life. So when the church struggles, we often ask, okay, where, where is God in this moment? Today answers that question. Revelation 4, verse 1. After this I looked, John says, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. If you have a red letter Bible, it should be in red, right? Jesus speaks. Come up here. Let me show you what comes next. Don't think next, again, don't put it on the other side of us and them and everything. Let me show you what's coming right now, right? What comes after this? Like if I said, hey, after service, we're gonna eat together, that's true, after this, right? Don't set it as sometime in the future. He's writing to the churches that exist at that time. And so when you're struggling, consider this. Jesus gives a view a glimpse into what is going on at the same time when we tend to struggle. Verse 2 says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now, at Generations, we're giving you an historic version of Revelation. In other words, what the church has long believed, not what has become popular in the last 200 years, just as a reference point. What the church has historically believed that John wrote to the seven churches. And really what I mean by that is sought as writing to the church that existed and to future generations of the church learning the same lessons, heavily obviously symbolic. In other words, lots of symbolism. It's an apocalyptic genre that uses a lot of imagery, but written for them. And so if they live through it and you're the next generation, then also by the same message to you. And if you make it this far forward to 2023, then, of course, to us. And never lose sight right now that the church is being persecuted. I don't mean our church, and I don't mean even the American church, but there are people, there are Christians in the world that are being martyred for their faith. They're just looking through some on Friday. One hot spot used to be in Mindanao, in the, in the, in the southern part of the Philippines. Uh, one place was 
in Libya when those 21 Coptic Christians from Egypt were caught in Libya just a few years ago and all beheaded for their faith. Like, never lose sight of the fact that in some places Christianity is illegal. And in some places, Christianity is so unpopular that you can lose your life for it. Or again, you're living. So don't think because we're not being persecuted at that level that it's not happening. And don't think because we're not being persecuted at that level means that it must mean some future time because it doesn't. And so an, an, an historic view of Revelation means that this is primarily future, uh, that this is not a book that is primarily future tense, that it is more present tense. And we don't take the highly symbolic things and attempt to define them literally. We also don't see this as the church being anywhere but a part of the entire book. We believe the church remains in the entire book of Revelation, that we will, we will go back and forth from what's going on at a heavenly level, the upper story, if you will, to what is going on on earth, but the church will be present for all of it. And so no kind of miraculous, mystical removal of the church. The church remains, and the church is called to be a witness to the world and endure as Jesus has already said, to the one who overcomes, you will sit with me on my throne. So this is the most historic view. You'll hear other things in other churches, but this is what we're talking about. So when it says, at once I was in the spirit, nothing mystical happens here. In fact, for those that say something does, I would just encourage them. Same exact language in chapter one. At once I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. In other words, on a Sunday, just like this. Then in verse 4, at once I was in the Spirit. And then again, we're going to see in chapter 17 and chapter 21, at once I was in the Spirit. Well, that event can't happen four times. He's just saying this. We were gathered together in the Spirit. And God in the Spirit showed me something. In the Spirit, that in the divine, in the supernatural, God revealed to me, not man, but God. And so he says, once I was in the spirit, remember Jesus says, come and look up here. He says, and at once I was in the spirit, right? Verse two, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Here's what I would tell you. Don't miss the main thing in looking at other things. What do I mean by that? He says, at once I was in the spirit and I saw a throne and one seated on the throne. Well, the main theme here is the throne and the one seated on the throne. We don't have to parse, what does it mean at once I was in the spirit? Keep our eye on the ball. The throne is mentioned. A throne or the word throne is repeated 19 times today. You'd be hard-pressed to find a word repeated that many times in any other passage. You would have to go to like 1 Corinthians 13 to find love repeated 16 times. Throne repeated 19 times in chapter 4 and chapter 5, most in chapter 4. And of those 19 times, 17 focus on the throne, meaning the throne of God. And six of those times zoom in even further and focus in on the one seated on the throne. And so what we want to keep an eye on today is the throne and the one seated on it. Lots of other things are going to take place around this passage. What we want to do is keep our eye on the throne and the one seated on it. Verse 3, 
And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Have no idea what that means, just for the record. A rainbow that appeared like an emerald. Like for me, I think of a rainbow, I think of multiple colors, I think of an emerald, I think of green. So I don't know. Right? Or it gives this jasper and carnelian. Well, it's giving us images. And again, we want to keep our eyes on the throne and, and the one seated on the throne. And when you hear these descriptive, image-driven words, here's what I would encourage you to do. Hear them, read them, and typically it's about your experience with how they make you feel. Like you, you feel kind of, okay, there was this, and, and there was this, and what I'm hearing is it was beautiful, right? It was amazing. It was kind of beyond the words he's got to explain it. Yeah, that, right? Maybe there's more symbolism in there that you're not picking everything up, and that's okay. Yes, these are things that were that existed on the ephod of the high priest and the priest back in Leviticus. Yes, that's true. That doesn't change anything for us. Is there symbolism there? Yes. For the most part, what you're hearing is this majestic and beautiful setting. And you're hearing about it in a way that is a bit beyond words. Let it just be that. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were, the 24, were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Here's the two uses of thrones that are not about God, his throne, him on the throne. And it says around God's throne, where God is seated, there's 24 thrones. And on these 24 thrones are 24 elders. And I've heard these explained a lot of ways. Oh, this must be the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel, and then the 12 apostles, sure, okay, maybe. Probably not, though. And we'll get there. These can't really be human beings here, and we'll see why in a minute. And so what I would suggest to you is probably just angelic beings, heavenly beings. We're going to see more here, and we're just going to keep asking, okay, what is this? Okay, what is this? There are going to be times where you can take the larger, broader context and say, okay, here's what I think this is, and here's what it probably can't be, and I would suggest today it can't be human, that it must be something else, which it's not God, it's not human, we're left with the angelic, right? We're left with heavenly created beings, and they're surrounding the throne, it says, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads, right? And so we see these surrounding God. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. That's in chapter 1. We covered that. 6, and before the throne... There it was as if it were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, notice all the proximity to the throne words. Before the throne, from the throne, around the throne. It says, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So again, remember the focus today. Is there lightning and thunder? Yes. You say storm, I say rock concert. I don't know, right? 
Actually, what I would tell you is this sounds a lot like Mount Sinai when God's presence surrounded Mount Sinai. And Moses was perfectly safe up there in God's presence. But the people around who saw it are like, I don't want any part of that. Right? And so we see this kind of combination of things. There's this stormy kind of description and then like a sea of glass that feels very calming. And so we get a mix of images. But again, before we go bananas trying to unpack all that and give meanings to it that it may not have, let me just say this. Don't miss the big E on the eye chart, the focus of the throne, before the throne and from the throne, around the throne, beside the throne, and coming from the throne. Like, the focus is the throne. Now remember also, there's nothing new here. So before we get into these four living creatures, which may indeed be my favorite part of Revelation, at least one of them for sure, it's not new. I want to read it to you. We'll put it on the screen. Ezekiel 1 says this, And I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the, earth, out of the north, and a great cloud and brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually. Sounds like the same thing, right? And in the midst of the fire, as it were gleaming metal, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. Nothing new here. I'm not saying it's not necessary, that Revelation isn't unique. I'm not saying it's not Scripture. It's amazing. But it's not giving us something new. It is actually bringing together a lot of things from a lot of Scripture to tell us a message we need to hear in the church today. Ezekiel has these four living creatures, and they descend with God from heaven carrying his throne. Now, the descriptions of them are similar but a little different, right? But enough to know, it sounds like we're talking about the same thing. And I want to just encourage you that it's a human being trying to describe something pretty indescribable. But again, let's not get lost on the little thing. Let's focus on the big thing, which is the throne. So all this should sound familiar. It comes from Scripture, verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning. We're starting back at verse 5. Came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire to the seven spirits of God, which is a representation of the Holy Spirit. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, the four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. So four living creatures. Again, no one is mistaking these for being human, so we're left with something heavenly. Just like we see in Ezekiel, just like we see in other passages, we see these angelic or heavenly beings. When I say angelic, understand that we have different categories. There's seraphim in Isaiah 6, we'll see that in a minute. There's cherubim, all over the altar. There's four living creatures. There's 24 elders. There can be different categories of something that God has created that isn't human. You with me? And they surround the throne. Now, there's some symbolism here. In fact, I'll tell you, there's some potential symbolism. Don't take this to the bank. This is what I see in it. I could be right. I could be wrong. 
So we have these four living creatures, one that looks like a lion, one like an ox, one like a man, one like an eagle. And for me, what I see is a representation of the four gospels. You're like, wait a minute, you lost me. Okay, Matthew writes to a primarily Jewish audience, and he writes that the lion of the tribe of Judah has come, right? Makes sense. Okay, lion, Matthew. Mark writes about the servant, Jesus, who came to save humanity. And in this day, back again, 1900 years ago, the ox was a beast of burden. It was the servant animal that plowed the fields and did the things, right? Okay, Luke writes about the historical man to Theophilus, that there really truly was a man named Jesus who came and claimed to be God and performed miracles and raised the dead and then was crucified, died, and resurrected. And so we have the third living creature, one that looks like a man. And then the fourth one, an eagle in flight. All throughout the Old Testament, the imagery of an eagle is divine. And John's gospel writes that you may know that Jesus claimed to be God. And he writes, he says, so that you will believe. So is it possible? Sure. Would I bank on that? No. Is the imagery deep and, and surrounding this? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that would be something implied to us in imagery. And there's a rule in studying scripture that you never let the implicit drive the conversation. You let the explicit teaching of scripture, meaning what is clearly stated, overrule or trump what is implied. So symbolism, maybe. I'm not alone. Other commentators see that same symbolism. Some see others. That's fine. What is explicitly going on here? Here's what I would tell you. What, instead of asking, what are these creatures? Because all we can take away is what is implied. Or what we can say they are maybe, or maybe not. But what we can do is ask, what are they doing? See, we're told that explicitly. Verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, and full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Some of you just perked up. You know exactly where this is going. You see, there are these beings with multiple wings <clears throat> that are around the throne of God. And that they're in this storm and cloud and this mixture of images that surround God on the throne. And these living creatures are singing or proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And we remind ourselves, Ezekiel seen these same living beings. And then Isaiah 6, and we'll put this on the screen, it says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. One called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the earth is full of his glory. We see beings that God has created, created beings, angelic beings, maybe, living creatures they are, surrounding the throne. We may not know what they are exactly or what they are supposed to represent. We can think about it. We can contemplate. We can discuss it. We could even disagree. But here's what we know for sure. We know what they're doing. 
They are worshiping God on the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The whole earth is full of his glory. See, Scripture teaches us that worship, even worship with singing, now worship is greater than the singing we do. This is a worship service. We're not singing right now. We're still in the worship service. But you and I are called to worship. You and I are commanded by God, told him it's pleasing that we worship God, that we actually stand and we sing. That's why every gathering we sing. And we sing words of worship. And yes, there's different categories of worship. There's worship, there's thanksgiving, there's praise, there's all these things. But we worship because God has called us to worship. Some of you know, one of my biggest pet peeves is when the message ends and we do communion and people take communion and just walk right out the door. Like, no, 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 you've been invited into worship. You get to respond to what hopefully God has said to you by worshiping God, by the thing that he says is pleasing to him. That you have the opportunity to stand and to sing And worship is not this thing we do as individuals. Worship is what we do as a gathered church. Just like we see in heaven a plurality of people lifting their voices as they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We join that chorus when we sing. Verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the eternal God. Verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will They existed and were created. Even the very words that are sung to God are words we find elsewhere in Scripture, primarily in the Old Testament, of people surrounding God with worship. If God wants to hear you proclaim who he is, why would you ever miss that moment? Why would you ever miss that moment to give to God what he asks for when he gives to you so much. Why would we gather together and ask things from God, but not stick around and do the thing he has asked for from us? We have the opportunity when we gather to do something unique together on the Lord's Day as a church, a local body of followers of Jesus, lifting up our voices to him who sits on the throne, proclaiming, holy, holy, holy. So we have this worship taking place in heaven. Jesus tells John, come up here. And he says, and at once, I'm in the spirit and I see. And then again, over and over, throne and the one seated on the throne. And then what's surrounding the throne and what's coming from the throne and descriptions of the throne that were Maybe unclear of what they all mean, but they, they invite us into the setting of God seated on the throne. So we have to ask ourselves this question, well, what about us? 
How is our worship? So I'll put this up. Not a lot of notes today. Worship check-in. Worship, proclaiming God's worth, never ceases in heaven as a model for us. Do we worship when life is challenging or just when we feel like it? Remember the contrast of what's going on in heaven and what's going on down on earth. See, on earth, we've been invited into the story of seven churches. Ephesus and Smyrna and Thyatira and Pergamum and, you know, the seven churches that are there. And five of those seven, the five faithful churches, are being persecuted, some to death, many to imprisonment, a lot to losing their livelihoods. And so we have the lower story, the human story. We have the churches suffering on earth. And then we have the upper story, the divine story. We see God still seated on his throne. God who is all-powerful. God who is creator. God who is eternal. God who has no end. And an angelic host of beings surround the throne and cry out, holy, holy, holy. We have to ask ourselves, where is our worship at? when we're stuck in circumstances that we don't like? Are we still able to lift our eyes up and worship God who is holy, holy, holy? Chapter five, verse one, it says this, then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and, with, and back and, and sealed with seven seals. And what happens here is everything that is big and moving and, and, and just a lot in the throne room of heaven, everything kind of slows down in this moment. In fact, the author slows us down. And instead of looking at the vast scene of the throne where there's lightning and thunder and fire and lots of imagery and a host of beings crying out, holy, 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 we move and we slow everything down to now just the right hand of God on the throne holding a scroll. Now, just so we can understand the passages coming, the scroll in Revelation, we're going to see it again in chapter 10 and one other place. The scroll re represents redemptive history, or easier way to say that, God's plan of redemption for humanity. Because just like we see worship in heaven and we see chaos on earth, here's what we should also see. We should see holiness, holy, holy, holy. We should see holiness in heaven and sinful chaos and corruption on earth. And what happens is in this moment, our author slows us down and brings us to the plan of redemption being held in the right hand of God seated on the throne and we have to ask ourselves the question, how do we connect our sinful humanity with a holy God? How, how do we take the upper story and the lower story? How do we take the holy God who, who cannot be around sin and, and then all of us who can't help but sin? And how do we reconcile these two together? And John slows us down for that moment. Verse 2, and a mighty angel, and I saw a mighty angel, he says, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. John says, and I began to weep loudly 
because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look inside of it. No one. No angelic beings. No human beings are found worthy to open the scroll, are found worthy to be a mediator between a holy God and a sinful humanity. There's no way to, to bridge these two together. You see, the, even the angels who are sinless, they, they can't be our substitute because they're not human. They are not like us, so they can't be with us, and they can't trade their lives for us. They're angelic beings whose job, at least in the case of the ones we've seen today, is to worship God. And so we have this paradox. We, we have no one who can reconcile the, the story of God, the holiness of God, the, the amazingness of God, but God in his hand has a plan. But no one is able to open that plan because everyone is broken. And there they sit separate. And an angel proclaims who can open the scroll and it seals. And no one is found to be able to do it. And John, overwhelmed by the sheer weight of redemption being right there, but no one can open it, John breaks and weeps deeply. How, how do we get this here? Here. And, and how do we take this here? How do we lift it up to God? There's no answer, and he breaks. And he weeps. And this moment slows for us that we can feel the pressure and the tension here. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John is weeping at the, at the idea that there may be no redemption, that there may be no reconciliation. Until now, he says, weep no more, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, he can open the scroll. And then in the biggest reveal ever, we feel this tension, and then it almost like weaves us kind of through the scene itself, and it says this, between the throne and the four living creatures and, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So many words that went wrong in these verses here. We're looking for a lion. What do we get? We get a lamb. We have a lamb looking as though it had been killed, but he's standing. What just happened here? And this is this majestic reveal of God, and it weaves us through the story that we can kind of look in between and figure out. Now, of course, we know sitting here today that we're talking about Jesus. And so just a little quick snapshot of redemptive history, the, what's in the scroll, just kind of giving you some touch points. That God, as soon as sin entered into human, human history, all the way back in Genesis 3, God proclaimed that the son of a woman would come and that though Satan would bruise his heel, he would crush Satan's head. And then you fast forward just a little bit 
And you see the promise that will bless all the nations made to Abraham in Genesis 12. You go all the way up to Genesis 49, and we're told that the scepter will not depart from Shiloh until depart from Judah until Shiloh. That one will come from Judah. Judah is one of the sons of Israel, a tribe. You keep going and turning the pages, and and you get to 2 Samuel 7 where God tells David, when David tries to make a house for God, and God says, ha, it's cute. I'm good. How about this? You'll have a house forever. From you, someone will always sit on the throne. Isaiah unpacks that later and talks about the root of David or the shoot of Jesse. All of that is coming together right now in this one reveal as the tension builds in the scene in heaven where no one is able to reconcile a wayward and sinful and corrupt humanity to a holy God where we've through to see Jesus, a lamb, looking as if though he had died but yet very much alive. You see, the gospel message is that it's not just promises being fulfilled in an amazing and, and, and impossible way. But it's a story of you and me turning our backs on God and going our own direction. And if you're sitting here today, you know you have chosen to go your own way. And if you're new to us here at Generations, we will be the first ones to tell you we're all messed up. That we all choose to go our own way, even even knowing the price that Jesus paid for that, we still make terrible decisions. But sin had separated humanity from God, and so we get these two stories. We see God separate and humanity separate. But God's right hand has a plan, and in his plan, he needs a sinless Savior. It can't be an angelic being, but it can't be a sinful human. So the son of a woman born of a virgin, Jesus, comes and enters into human history and lives a sinless life and dies a substitutionary death on a cross trading his perfect human and divine life as a payment for us. And that as he is nailed to a cross, our sins are punished. As he is laid in a grave, our sins are forgiven. As he raises from the grave, new life goes out to all who will believe. Jesus is the lion who takes, I mean, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, John chapter 1 John the Baptist says those words. He sees and he says, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, the lamb, there he is. The fulfillment of God's promises. And so we get this tense, sorrowful moment in heaven where John, our narrator and writer, just comes to this place where he just weeps. And then he sees Jesus. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb standing, looking as though he had been slain. Verse 7, and he went and took the scroll. Jesus, the Lamb, goes and takes the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. Everything in heaven right now is holding its breath, and there is no one who can take the scroll. And this moment breaks John, but we weave our way through the crowd, and we see the lamb, and the lamb takes the scroll from God. You can imagine this moment. Redemptive history is now going to unfold. 
That's the story where you and I are brought in, where God and humanity can be reconciled, where we can be lifted up and where God comes down to meet us. Verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, listen, which are the prayers of the saints. Let me, let me just pause. As redemptive history starts to unfold, as Jesus takes matters literally into his own hand, as he takes the very plan of God and he will be the answer we have waited for, as he takes the scroll, everybody in heaven just falls down before him and worships. But we're also told that at that moment, the prayers of the saints, that's you, that's me, that's the churches, the seven churches that this is to, their prayers are being lifted up to God. You see, these angelic beings that are, that are in heaven and surrounding God, they, they have these purposes. And we've seen like to the, to the angel of the church of Pergamum, some relationship where God puts someone there to focus on. And, and, and then we see that when these angels fall down and when these elders fall down, when these living creatures fall down, one of the things that get lifted up is our prayers and they raise up like an incense. This is the litter throughout Scripture in the Psalms and the Old Testament and the, and the temple. They would light incense to remind you that your prayers raise up to God like a fragrant offering. That God desires to hear your prayers when we gather and pray that it becomes like an incense to God. The least attended thing we do is when we gather like tonight, when we gather together to pray. It always baffles me that the creator of the universe wants to hear our voice collectively together and we don't do it. I'm not shaming you into tonight. Unless that works, then totally I'm shaming you into tonight. But <laughs> I want you to see the image. I want you to see that fragrant offering as the church, the saints, plural, lift up their prayers to God. So when they sang a new song, verse 9, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Here's another reason why these 24 elders cannot be humans. is because they say, listen, Jesus, you ransomed others, and then they talk about those people, and it says, and they, I'll read it again, and they shall reign, right? You have made them a kingdom. They shall reign, not we. See, it's not people representing us in heaven. It's created beings that live and surround God and worship and hold our prayers up to God. And yet they know you have created them for a purpose. Let me summarize. We're going to wrap this up. Listen. So there's God in heaven being worshipped, deserving worship. There's a church struggling and suffering on the earth, and there's this disconnect. And as chapter 5 opens up, we see this disconnect. But God has a redemptive plan. God has a gospel plan. It's in his right hand, but no one can fulfill it until we see Jesus. 
And Jesus comes and he, and he takes the scroll. He takes the redemptive plan. He, he takes the gospel into his own hands. And he fulfills what it takes for us to be lifted up to God. So if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear the complexity and the distance and the need. And just know that you're being invited to follow Jesus alongside us today. And if you've been a, a follower of Jesus for some time now and, and this has been lost on you, just kind of take this for granted. You were raised in it and you've been doing it for decades. You've been a follower of Jesus for longer than I've been alive. Don't lose how big this is. Don't lose the majestic view of your prayers going up to God in a fragrant offering and the distance between a holy God and a sinful man. And if you're new to Jesus and you're just taking all this in, hear that your prayers lift up because Jesus has come down, that he has met us here. But I want to put all this together and I want you to see these two scenes then I want you to hear what is said because of Christ. I'm going to pick up in the middle of verse 9. By your blood, you ransomed. This is where they're worshiping Jesus. This is what they're proclaiming in heaven. By your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And listen, and you have made them a kingdom and priests for God. Now, more important, listen to this. And they shall reign on the earth. What's going on for the church right now in Revelation 2 and 3? They're being persecuted. Thank you. Oh, I thought we were going to have to go backwards and do it all over again. They are suffering, being persecuted, even killed. What did Jesus just do? Listen to it again. They shall reign on the earth. You shall reign here on earth. In eternity, you reign here. Those who persecute today, gone. You reign here. If you are in Christ, this is a promise that the suffering and struggle and trial of this world will end. And not only will those who did it be judged and, and, and sent away and, and, and justice will be meted out on them, but you will reign here. So if you feel alone and persecuted, if you feel struggle today, hear that because of what Christ has done, you get to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and you will reign here. Sin will not reign eternally over you. Pain will not reign eternally over you. Suffering will not reign. You will reign here perfectly forever. That's big, that this world gets to be flipped and that we get to be a kingdom where our king sits and we reign as his kingdom. That's huge. That's the scroll. That's what Jesus came to achieve. We'll sew this up right here. Ready? Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the throne, living creatures and elders, the voice of many angels, number myriads and myriads that's a word that means a lot, a lot and a lot, and thousands and thousands, that's millions, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Listen, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, redemptive history is now unfolding, and now every creature in heaven and on earth begin to do this. It says, and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them saying, 
To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Those poor elders can't stay on their feet. You're invited today to be this part of the story where we get to stand and worship and proclaim to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You, you have come not only to fulfill lots of promises, not only to come and, and make what is an impossible way possible. You have come to bring the upper story and the lower story together into one redemptive story in you. And that all who come, that all who will give their lives fully and wholly to you, that they may know that one day, no matter how hard today is, if we overcome, if we conquer here, meaning we follow you no matter what here, you have paved the way eternally to make this world right again. And we celebrate that. And we join in that. And we invite you to transform our lives by that. When our lives are not going as we would want it to be, let us lift our eyes up to you, our creator, the sustainer of life. Let us know you hear our prayers. Let us know you reign over everything, over the storm and over the peaceful sea. Let us know that you have set in motion a plan that Jesus has fulfilled and that though we may suffer here, we will reign forever with you. Help us to lift our eyes above our story up into your glory. Whenever we face trial, let us lift our eyes up. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.